0: All right, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here on Prison Focus Radio at KPOO, San Francisco, eighty-nine point five. I am your host, Nubé Brown, and we are in a our fall fund drive. So please consider making a very generous, uh, supportive donation, contribution, really an investment in this Black owned, Black run radio station, KPOO San Francisco 89.5. This is a real treasure in our community, and I will always give a shout-out for a deep sense of gratitude for this hour of prison Focus radio, where I know nowhere else where we are given the opportunity to bring forth the voices and the issues of our people inside and what they are going through so that we can uh, work towards Uh, abolition, and um, of course, in the name of our people's freedom. So again, give uh, generously. You can go right online at kpoo.com. If you want to do it that way, that's where you can also pay by credit card. But if you are on the lo-fi, you can donate by check, of course, and make your checks payable to KPOO and mail it to KPOO, PO Box 156650, San Francisco, California, 94115. And as they always say, your, genera- your generosity is greatly appreciated. All right, so if y'all have been listening for the past few weeks, you know that we have been talking about the indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex by Jokahashima Jinsai, concept by Abdul Olubala Shakur. Last week, we were not able to speak with Hashima, and it is the case for this week as well. But we are going to continue uh, reading this indictment, and we're just going to keep that energy going. We are going to continue to give flowers to Dr. Mutulu Shakur, because as of yet, I have not heard anything else um, as to whether he is Home, or if they, yeah, if they have changed, uh, the system has maybe changed its mind somehow. Miraculously, have found their humanity, and have allowed uh, Doctor Matulu Shakur to come home. It could be that, um, you know, they are keeping things really on the down low. But nonetheless, we are going to continue to give him his flowers as long as we know that he is still here, and until we get an update saying otherwise. And so, um, again, um, so uh, we are not going to be hearing the voice of Joko Hashima Jensai, at least around the indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex. I may bring some other um, uh, audio from him um, from uh, speaking about the autonomous infrastructure mission, the AIM, and, uh, which is a part of the Amend the 13th campaign. So um and I think we're also going to uh hear a I'm going to read a poem from um our comrade our beautiful sister queen Asada Shakur. So stay with us and uh we're going to get right to it. All right. Why are we reading The Indictment of the State in its Prison Industrial Slave Complex? First of all because slavery still exists. The 13th Amendment says, or it reads, Section 1, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Except as a punishment for crime. That is not abolishing slavery. It has been redesigned into prison slavery. And it shows itself in in various forms. But let's just be clear. Right now, there are five states with slavery on their ballots. Five states, Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, Vermont, and Oregon. Voters are all going to get to decide whether they want slavery to exist, the language of slavery to exist in their constitution and thereby allowing slavery or not. We had that opportunity here in California. Our governor made sure that that bill did not get to the ballot for the voters to make a decision on. And his reasoning, it is too expensive to end slavery. And once we know, we don't unknow. We can never not know again. So what are we going to do about it? Let's start with at least accepting the fact that slavery still exists as a legal way to deny people their civil and human rights once they are convicted of a crime. Also knowing that thousands of laws are being created every year, many of them making sure that the people stay controlled and compliant. So this is why we are reading the indictment of the state. And its prison industrial slave complex. Slavery is still legal. So here we go. Indictment part two, and this is the indictment count three assault. CDC small r employees have knowingly and intentionally engaged in a pattern of physical assaults on prisoners, both with and without firearms, and directly engaged in orchestrating assaults on individuals and groups of prisoners by other prisoners acting as proxies. Most often racial attacks against New African black prisoners in a pattern of violence carried out under color of law, specifically designed to deprive those subject to those assaults of their most basic constitutional protections under the First, Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments USC in furtherance of a criminal enterprise. Remember, this indictment is acts of direct racketeering activity in prison by CDC small R officials. Over the course of CDCR's tenure, there have been numerous instances of assaults on prisoners by staff and assaults of prisoners orchestrated by staff, some so politically repressive, massively brutal, or particularly debased that they've taken on historic significance. These instances of assaults are so numerous and the names of individual perpetrators so voluminous that la- listing each individual act is beyond the scope of this indictment. However, the instances of officer-led and or officer ex- orchestrated assaults are so common that for purposes of this indictment we will recount some of the most significant types of assaults that have been carried out in furtherance of this criminal enterprise. CDC small R official officers and officials most often in retaliation for some perceived slight or perceived threat by a prisoner have point assembled teams of five or more officers and at times including administrators to teach a prisoner their place point assembled teams of five or more officers and at times officials near a targeted prisoner's cell, have the cell opened and enter en masse and beat the prisoners or prisoners in question until they are satisfied. Then that prisoner will be placed in ADSEG, which is the whole and charged with assaulting staff while delaying a peace officer in the commission of his or her duties. One thing that I do want to say about that, one of the charges when they say assault on assaulting staff, actually, if, um, an officer can actually charge something like their head hit my hand and so that's why I'm injured and so not not that I'm injured because I punched them but because they can completely flip the script and say I have been injured by that head being there and so... um, that That becomes the assault, and they can make those uh, the assault on the officer and they can make those charges, and they can actually get uh remuneration for those things um in southern states um they if if a prisoner actually injures themselves, they uh, are charged with um, injuring property, and so that that's what they are charged for because of the 13th Amendment exception clause in all of these state constitutions it says that if you are convicted of a crime you become a slave of the state thereby property and so if you injure yourself you do not get the help that you need and as a matter of fact you are charged with uh, injuring property this is why we're reading the indictment point Prisoners from different racial groups or street organizations, i.e. Southern Mexican white prisoners versus New African black prisoners, Crips versus Bloods, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, will be intentionally pitted against each other, especially in instances where prisoners' unity led to organized resistance in inhumane conditions is present or perceived to be present by staff most often led by new African black prisoners and animosities between street or prison-based organizations to ensure prisoners remain focused primarily on attacking one another and not resisting the inhumane policies and conditions of the prison-industrial slave complex. also want to mention the agreement to end hostilities, which was created uh, by um, the prisoners on the inside who became the... Uh, uh, the leaders of the not only the California hunger strikes from 2011 to 2013, um, but the victors in the clash, class action lawsuit uh, that won the prisoners their right to be released from indefinite solitary confinement the kind that was meant to break them. And how they got that support was by developing the agreement to end hostilities and they literally stopped all violence in prisons against each other the prisoners against each other point cdc small r staff have have on multiple occasions armed White and Mexican prisoners or allowed them to maintain their weapons after doing mass searches to confiscate actual and potential weapons from new African black prisoners. The orchestrated conditions which allowed the two sides to assault one another with white or Mexican prisoners being armed while new African prisoners were unarmed. Point. During instances of racial conflict while doing controlled movement CDC small-R staff have routinely opened the cell doors of a prisoner or prisoners from one group while a large number of an opposing group were on the tier and allowed them to run into that prisoner's cell and assault them. Point, during racial conflicts, being that the vast majority of CDC small-R staff are white or Mexican, they often sided with those prisoners from their cultural groups. There have been numerous instances where white or Mexican prisoners would attack New Africans, blacks in the chow hall, and when the New African prisoners would respond in self-defense, often effectively, the attacking whites or Mexicans would get down and the gun tower staff would shoot the new African. This was so widespread at one point, it became a standard tactic. Point. CDC small-r staff in ADSEG and SHU facilities have repeatedly orchestrated gladiator-style fights at multiple institutions for entertainment purposes, financial gain, gambling, and to ensure the perpetuation of rivalries between racial groups and or prisoner street organizations. Prisoners from different and opposing factions would be intentionally led into exercises yards for the purpose of assaulting one another for the pleasure of the guards in many instances where gambling between staff on the outcomes did not go in the favor of specific staff they would shoot the offending victor again i want to uh, mention the agreement to end hostilities and also that the agreement to end hostilities has been put forward into the streets and with the youth um and um Yes, and I want you to stay uh, stay with us on that because um, Minister King X, the director of California Prison Focus and founder of Cage Universal uh, and other comrades from um, formerly uh, of this prisoner class that we are talking about uh, uh, just did a wonderful program and uh, talking about the the uh, the agreement to end hostilities becoming a curriculum and uh bringing it to again bringing it to the youth and um and so that is being formulated and i want you to stay tuned for that as we get uh, more information in its development so the work is being done to uh to create pathways for rehabilitation for education for uh, the protection of our people inside and the youth uh, by the people on the inside working with people out here who care about this issue so there is no need to be feel hopeless or helpless or uh, in despair because the work is being done I just want us to be aware of it so that we can participate in the ways that we can and support this amazing work that is being done Um, because we are not getting any help from CDCR or Sacramento (sighs) point in ad-seg shoe facilities in those instances where staff feel as though they may have been slighted, o- offended, or otherwise, quote, disrespected, they will wait until the particular prisoner is being escorted to or from medical, showers, law library, etc., where they must submit to mechanical restraints and close the cuffs on their wrists to injure them, yank the chain as they're being escorted, or trip the prisoner so they fall with no way to catch themselves. When the prisoner moves to pr- protest this mis- this Treatment. Staff assaults the prisoner with chemical agents, pepper spray, mace, etc., or simply beats them with fists and clubs. To ensure official sanction is given to the assault, staff compounds the crime with another by falsifying a a fictitious rules violation report alleging resisting a peace officer resulting in use of force or assault on staff. Point. In numerous instances in SHU and ADSEG, CDC small-r staff has opened the doors of rival prisoners while opposing prisoners are on the tier. Intentionally, allowing prisoners to assault one another. In other instances, too numerous to name, they have facilitated two-on-one scenarios where one prisoner must defend himself against two attackers. Point. In numerous instances, CDC small-R staff have used tasers, electric stun belts, billy clubs, mace, pepper spray, high-velocity water hoses, and other weapons to assault prisoners they've targeted for personal, political, or other illegitimate reasons. Point. Staff have repeatedly used sexual assault, rape, as a form of corporal punishment against prisoners who, in most instances, are physically small. They feel have been, quote, disrespectful towards staff. In numerous cases, both in Adseg-Nshu and general population facilities, staff have intentionally moved or transferred offending prisoners who they feel may have been verbally abusive or assaulted towards a staff member, most often young, physically small prisoners, into the cell with documented violent sexual predators known as booty bandits to be beaten and raped repeatedly, often for days, weeks, or even months on end, while staff ignore the screams and knowingly allow the abuse to continue. Young, our children, or any of our loved ones, that we want to come home in some kind of uh Is supposed to be coming home better. But it can't happen if things like this are taking place, um, again, sanctioned by CDC small r and other officials. Point. In numerous instances where prisoners are active litigants or organizers in protests against such oppressive prison conditions or have led strikes or protests against such inhumane conditions, state actors have repeatedly targeted them for assault by other prisoners who may be rivals of their cultural or organizational group simply at the behest of staff in exchange for some gratuity or consideration. These attempted assassinations and violent coercive attacks are particularly heinous as they seek to freeze First Amendment speech and or access to the courts and is particularly designed to retaliate against those who seek to positively change the conditions of imprisonment. Also. Please keep in mind this is exactly the same kind of thing that goes on out here when we want to protest the conditions that we are living under here. What happens to us? The police come out, they tear gas us, they intimidate us, they harass, um, uh, they harass and arrest and, uh, uh, and target um, lead organizers that they can identify and then they harass their family members as well. This is all to keep us silent. This is all to keep us complicit. This is all to keep us conditioned to um, the, the treatment that says we, uh, we will uh, take these crumbs and like it. And we need to resist that at all costs. Indictment count four, murder. Murder. CDC small-R employees have knowingly and intentionally engaged in a pattern of murder in continuance of a criminal enterprise, which has included facilitating murders by prisoner proxies, creating conditions to afford the opportunity to commit murder under the color of law, and committing murder through willful medical neglect and or withholding medical care. The commission or facilitation of murders by CDC Small R have been carried out primarily to repress organized resistance by prisoners against abuses, inhumane prison conditions, or to prevent exposure to the public of this ongoing criminal enterprise by prisoner litigants and or political politicized prisoners. This means the primary purpose of murders carried out or facilitated by CDC Small R staff were are to dissuade, retaliate against, or freeze the speech of prisoners they considered to be a threat or potential threat to their ongoing racketeering operations, like perpetuation of the prison industrial slave complex. Secondarily, its purpose is to kill those prisoners whose staff find offensive or are in opposition to particular groups which may be favored by the staff in question through protracted means racism personal animosity siding with particular groups against others in gang or race-based conflicts etc etc these instances of murder or the facilitation of murder are again so numerous in nature spanning over a century black panther party for self-defense come to mind george and jonathan jackson come to mind why we do block august come to mind These instances of murder or the facilitation of murder are again so numerous in nature spanning over a century and the list of perpetrators so voluminous that citing every individual case extends well beyond the scope of this indictment. Instead, we will recount some of the most common types and infamous cases of murder CDC small-R employees have carried out or facilitated over the span of its tenure to serve as a representation of the totality of these criminal acts." In numerous instances, CDC small-r staff have fomented conflicts between rival racial groups and or organizations to create conditions which would allow staff members to assassinate a targeted prisoner or group of prisoners. In most of these instances, staff would target new African revolutionary nationalists, NARN prisoners. Be it on the tier or prison yard, CDC small-r staff would release white supremacists and or rival Mexican prisoners specifically to attack NARN prisoners And when new African prisoners would meet the attacks with self-defense or see the setup and seek to preempt it, colluding staff in the gun towers would shoot and kill the targeted new African prisoners. This is not to say this assassination tactic was used exclusively against new African prisoners, but this tactic was used most often on new African prisoners who were often at the forefront of anti-prison industrialization protests or litigation against prison conditions and or abusive employees in point in multiple instances staff would assemble outside a targeted prisoner's cell and enter with three or more staff to assault the prisoner who often fought back against the beatings once beaten unconscious staff would fashion a noose out of his or her sheet or other material and hang the prisoner from the vent light top bunk or other fixture put the cell back in order then leave hours later staff would walk the tear and quote discover the targeted prisoner dead from an apparent suicide because the perpetrators actually process the scene and issue the circumstances under which the victim was discovered to the coroner very rarely if ever has there been any investigation into these quote suicide style murders and if any of you are also paying attention we know that there are plenty of people dying and being murdered in alabama um uh, state prisons and people are, especially on the outside, there's some serious mobilization that's going on and organizing around that. Point, in multiple instances where prisoners are engaged in a simple fistfight or altercation, again, most often new African prisoners, staff in the gun tower will tell them to, quote, get down, and the prisoners will comply. It will then be the tower staff, in many cases a known racist, when seeing them proned out will target a particular prisoner and still shoot him in the back, chest, or head killing them for no reason outside of racial or political animus point in multiple instances staff in the gun tower who either hold some animosity towards a particular prisoner and or group of prisoners or identifies with the rival group or organization of a particular prison prisoner or group of prisoners, will open the cell door of a targeted prisoner and allow rival prisoners to enter their cell and murder them. On other occasions, the targeted prisoner may be on the tier and the tower staff will open the doors of the rival prisoners and let them murder the targeted prisoner on the tier, in some instances aiding them by shooting the victim as he's being stabbed under trying and or trying to defend himself. In multiple... Now... (laughs) Think about this that's going on, people. Please take a moment to hear what is taking place. Bring it in deep. Now you can just say that the prisoners are liars. But what what reason would they have to lie? First of all, in multiple instances, staff has knowingly released a targeted prisoner into the exercise yard of a rival racial group or opposing organization and then turn away, allowing the targeted prisoner to be murdered. Point. In multiple instances, CDC small-R staff would take sides in racial or organizational conflicts arming their proxies with explosives, bomb-making material, guns, ammunition, knives, hacksaw blades, and mental stock to produce homemade firearms, knives, bombs, and other weapons to kill rival prisoners. This logistical support resulted in the murders of numerous prisoners and served as a potent political and legislative tool for the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, the CCPOA, as well pointing to the escalating violence and increasing death rates as proof of the incorrigible nature of offenders and need for harsher sentencing, more laws, more prison guards, and new prison construction. CDC Small R was able to secure for itself a much larger share of public dollars, expanded budgets, higher salaries, more benefits, etc., using their complete control of the narrative. CDC Small R has used these opportunities to scapegoat visiting friends, family, and prisoners as the source of contraband weapons knowing full well it is virtually impossible to smuggle in guns, metal of any kind, explosive or other weapons material into prisons through visiting, and was and is still, in fact, almost always staff providing such weapons and materials to prisons. If you have never visited a prison, then I suggest you do, and then you will see why it is virtually impossible for family members to bring in any kind of contraband. They are turned away for wearing pants that are too tight. They are turned away for wearing too much sparkly on their shirts. There is no way that they are getting in with any kind of, of piece of metal. We have had to take the, the wire out of our bras, ladies, in order to get through security. So there is no way. So we need to stop believing these lies. And believing in this sick narrative. Also, just take a look at what's happening out here with the police. The guards inside are nothing but the police for prisons. And we know how with complete immunity, the police are taking down our people. They are murdering them. They are planting evidence. They are able to, um, uh, uh, um, you, you know... Uh, again, plant evidence. Sorry, and um, and lie, and have uh, you know tweets, and um, uh, you know these racial, uh, racially explosive tweets uh, back and forth, come and um, they they can uh, fail their psychological tests. And, and still be hired, and they they can murder people, and, um, you know, bend their pins to say that they've killed people, and get away with it. You don't think that's happening inside? Please, let's not be this naive. Sorry, I'm just, I, it just gets me so angry. Point, in multiple instances, staff has set up gladiator style fights between prisoners from rival groups or organized organizations and ad seg and shoe units for both illegal gambling and political purposes manufacturing uh, prisoner violence statistics etc in those instances where the wrong prisoner prevailed or staff is upset at the outcome the targeted prisoner was shot and killed point in multiple instances cdc small r staff have intent intentionally withheld or delayed the delivery of necessary medical care or emergency first aid in order to murder critically injured or chronically ill prisoners or prisoners that they just don't like in multiple instances where prisoners have been shot injured or chronically ill often targeted by new african political prisoners or other political prisoners staff have withheld emergency medical intervention until they have bled out or intentionally neglected to provide appropriate medical care for other injuries and or illnesses, head injury, heart attack, stroke, pneumonia, diabetic shot, etc., until they have died. This practice is so common and widespread that intentional medical neglect or delayed care resulted in the death of two prisoners per week on average prompting CDC smaller health care services to be placed into medical receivership by the courts. Our beautiful comrade, elder, wise, new African revolutionary humanist Nantambu Jamaa is now on a hunger strike. Uh, by the time you hear this, will have been two weeks. He is an elder. He is still suffering from the effects of the stroke that he had two years ago. Um, he has been medically neglected and he is now on a hunger strike because of that neglect and because of the danger that they continually put in him uh they continually put him in so tawanan tambu jama is on a hunger strike at the california healthcare facility in stockton um, i don't know if any others are also on strike but he is doing this as a representative at, of of the people uh, that are there with him uh, he was putting his body on the line. This is one of the main representatives of the the California hunger strikes uh, of the Pelican Bay short corridor and um, signer of the the agreement to end hostilities. Again, one of the four main reps uh, representing the prisoner class, the prisoner um, human rights class of the Ashker versus Brown uh, class action lawsuit. Again, that got. Um, thousands of people released from the mind-breaking genocidal security housing units up in Pelican Bay and in Corcoran. We could list more as CDC Small R has over the decades murdered and facilitated the murder of targeted prisoners in an almost infinite number of ways in furtherance of their ongoing criminal empire. Enterprise. However, what's presented here is sufficiently representative of CDC uh, small r's acts and omissions over the decades to clearly evidence a pattern of murder in furtherance of a racketeering enterprise. These murders, like the countless murders before them, were carried out to further CDCRs small r's racketeering activity by intimidating other prisoners from opposing the status quo of inhumane conditions or pursuing litigation and or protest against the department's abuses do i'm going to say this this is me now uh don't let that happen to us out here Okay, back to the reading. Such action could also intimidate the families of prisoners or mislead the public as to the true nature of this violence, thus inhibiting them from pursuing public opposition to or reform of the prison industrial slave complex. In this context, these murders have an equally adverse effect impact on the state of California's and the nation's interest in maintaining humane, corruption-free prisons and the free enjoyment and protection of our constitutional rights. This pattern and practice of murder in support of an ongoing racketeering enterprise stand in violation of 18 USC S 1959, S 1961, S 1962, the RICO Act, PCS 187, PCS 186.2, and PCS 13519.6. Love by Asada Shakur. Love is a contraband in hell. Cause love's an acid that eats away bars. But you, me, and tomorrow hold hands and make vows. That struggle will multiply. The hacksaw has two blades. The shotgun has two barrels. We are pregnant with freedom. We are a conspiracy. And now the last episode of Dope is Death, the podcast that accompanies the documentary of the same name, Policing the Minds of the People.
3: It's important for us to understand that the struggle for our liberation is a complete process problem and which requires of us to be prepared
1: to address the causes of our oppression. In the 1970s, as heroin ravaged New York City, political radicals, including members of the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, pioneered the use of acupuncture to treat addiction. Dr. Mertullo Shakur led this movement and founded the first community acupuncture detox clinic in North America. Over a decade later, he was listed among the FBI's 10 most wanted. Montreal-based filmmaker Mia Donovan explores the hidden history of how the Lincoln Detox Program took on the public health care system, Big Pharma, and the War on Drugs. Civil rights hero or enemy of the state? Dr. Shakur has been incarcerated for over 30 years. Dope is Death, the podcast asks, why is he really still in prison?
5: of dope Death, we talked about how important the political education classes were at the lincoln detox as well as how acupuncture can be used as a tool towards self-determination here is activist and historian Haki Queli shakur who was featured in episode three
4: even though, even, even as a kid going to school the main thing that i had always noticed in the public education system was the lack of teaching us about ourselves. And I believe that that is the most damaging part of the public education system is the lack of teaching one's history. In order for us to find out who we are, we have to go through that proper education. We have to go through, you know, being taught by our own is the most important thing. That's one of the key things that I learned from Mutula also, that we have to teach our own people in order to pull them out of the conditions of self-hate trauma mental health illnesses and things of that nature because all this stuff is probably in the black community
5: in this final episode of Dopa's death we will talk about why dr matulu shakur is still incarcerated after 34 years how he was convicted of being the mastermind in a rico conspiracy case that included the infamous 1981 brinks armored truck robbery in nyack new york where two police officers and a Brinks guard were killed. There was never any evidence that Dr. Shakur was on the scene of the crime, and in trial, it was indicated that others, including a paid informant, were responsible for the deaths. In this episode, we'll be talking to longtime comrade of Matulu's Watani Tehimba, who was a founding member of the New African People's Organization and an associate of the Republic of New Africa. In 1986, he was jailed for over a year for refusing to speak to the grand jury because he was politically associated with Matulu. Watani was also rapper Tupac Shakur's intellectual mentor and business manager. We'll also be talking to Brad Thompson of the People's Law Office in Chicago. Brad is part of the legal team working on Matulu's case for the Parole Commission and his compassionate release plea. As I mentioned in previous episodes, I was never granted permission to record an actual interview with Mutulu, either over the phone or in person, but I was able to visit him regularly while making the documentary. In fact, he hasn't been granted permission to give an interview since 2003. Here's a clip from one of the few recorded interviews. It's from 1995.
3: When I became involved in the uh, Lincoln Detox process, I had already been uh, in the Republic of New Africa. I had also been involved in the National Black Political Convention. I, I was already a political animal. So acupuncture and Lincoln Detox together was a political and medical threat to the theory of legalized chemical warfare within our
4: community. I met Dr. Shapur in 1973. I was born in 51, so I guess I was, what, 22 (laughs) at that time? Matulu came to our martial arts class in Los Angeles on Central Avenue, um, and that's where I met him.
5: That's what Tani Tehimba.
4: Matulu was a target of COINTELPRO, and so he had always been looked at out there as a person representing those people that needed assistance. And so he was generally seen as a leader. The only way we knew about COINTELPRO, there was a, a break-in in a uh, media, Pennsylvania by a group called Citizens Commission to uh, Investigate the FBI. as a fight group that broke in and leaked the information to the press.
5: The Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI, an anti-war group, broke into the office to interfere with the Vietnam draft. But what they discovered was that the FBI had launched a covert war against its own citizens. The papers revealed that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover gave clear direction to his agents to, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist groups. And to prevent the rise of a black messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement, end quote. In other words, COINTELPRO was ordered to prevent Black leaders from gaining influence and power in the community in an effort to protect the so-called existing social and political order. Among those individuals whose names appeared in these memos were Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Fred Hampton, and Matulu Shakur. Fred Hampton of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party was identified as a radical threat and was assassinated by the Chicago Police Department and the FBI in 1969, two years before the COINTEL documents were revealed. Here's a news clip shortly after Fred Hampton was assassinated.
1: Anyone who went through that apartment and examined the evidence that was remaining there could come to only one conclusion, and that is that Fred Hampton 21 years old, and a member of a militant, well-known militant group, was murdered in his bed, probably as he lay asleep. It seems very clear to us that he was assassinated, and the police officer who did that assassination then walked away from it, then walked away from it and said to other people, Bobby Rush is next. Now, all of you who know Bobby Rush know that he is the Minister of Fint of the Black Panther Party. you Bobby think there's Fint. going to be retaliation then by the Panthers? There there won't be any
4: retaliation by the Panthers. I think the time will come when the people themselves will uh, take the powers that belong to them into their hands and move uh, uh, to guarantee life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
5: detox was shut down in 1978, Matulu Shakur founded BANA, Black Acupuncture Advisory Association of North America. BANA was as much of a political project as it was an important community acupuncture clinic. And as such, it was heavily surveyed by the authorities. The clinic was in operation for three years until it came under direct attack by the FBI, who alleged that Matulu and others associated with the clinic were responsible for the 1981 Brinks armored truck robbery.
4: There was a, a Brinks expropriation in, in uh, 1981 in Niagara, New York. The two police officers were killed and security guard. Uh, there was a, a attempted, uh, uh, I guess, expropriation of uh, over a million dollars, and that was what his charges stemmed from. The two was not a, uh, on site, was not arrested on site. Uh, he was arrested after going underground uh, when he fu- said that they was looking for him. He feared for his life and went underground. Matula was arrested in Los Angeles in 1986. I lived in Los Angeles. And so he's arrested in my town. He had been underground, uh, you know, for for years on the FBI's uh, 10 most wanted list. And so they looked at me as a part of a a, a a group that may have been helping keep him underground. Rather than charging me with that, they gave me a grand jury subpoena to say, come tell us what whatever you want, you know, whatever we want to know. And so, uh, i refused to testify before the grand jury i served 14 months at uh, fci terminal island just like matula matula has no criminal history i had no criminal history so at 35 years old i'm picked up off the street and thrown into and i went straight from the prison i mean straight from the court to the shoe was a special housing unit uh on 23 hour lockdown chain and shackle you know every time i left the cell which was one hour a day three showers a week restricted visitation all those things So I was treated as a criminal. So I think that when I tell you that political people or political activists are treated differently, I'm telling you from personal experience. They charged me with six army truck
3: robberies, the liberation of a of form, using illegally gained funds to finance camp for black children in Mississippi, and to put a Acupuncture
5: Clinic in Harlem, were part of the so-called enterprise, I was accused of financing with illegally gained funds. As described in episode three, the Republic of New Africa was a black nationalist organization working towards an independent nation with the five southern states of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. They also sought payment from the U.S. as reparations for slavery and ongoing systemic racism. The government viewed the RNA as a major threat to the security of America. And we have a right uh, as, as oppressed people to, to
4: talk about self-determination. And the oppressor can't tell the oppressed how that manifests. And so if we say we want our independent nation, that's our right. And if he's that's
2: the path he took, you can't criminalize him for that, taking that path. The government will go out of its way to use the criminal legal system to shut down the movements.
5: That's Brad Thompson of the People's Law Office and Dr. Shakur's current legal team.
2: I think that Matulu, based on his involvement in the Republic of New Africa, based on the work he was doing regarding the detoxification and his impact made him a threat to the structures and white supremacist existence that society was built around. And because of that, I think that is the reason that he was such a target of COINTELPRO. Well,
4: COINTELPRO would do things like, uh, they'll send in agent provocateurs to try to get them involved in some kind of criminal activity. Um, That's COINTELPRO. Those attackers that are utilized to disrail uh, either misdirect or uh, redirect what the movement would be going into uh, in terms of uh, neutralizing, neutralize through killing them, send them into exile, or incarceration. The United States has to say that there are no political prisoners. In order to justify incarcerating a political person, they have to be charged with a criminal act. And that is why he's in prison today, charged with crimes. The Black
3: Liberation Movement in 1969 lost something like 43 people were killed. And this is registered members of the Black Panther Party, Republic of New Africa, the Black Guard, SNCC. No organization, these are registered members. And something like 785 people were arrested and put in prison. In any other country, with the population that new African people represent in any other country in the world that will be considered war. Now, I'm a prisoner of war of a movement. Whether the particular acts that they allege in this so-called RICO indictment, which is a conspiracy, is true against me, they have not
4: no proof of that. And so what they're saying is that the political acts that were carried out by the group associated with Matulu, even though there was no physical evidence that put him at any of the crimes, no eyewitnesses that put him there, nothing put him there, so he's a part of
2: a conspiracy. RICO was first enacted as a prosecutorial tool to shut down the mob, and basically, it was created with the intention of recognizing that the structure of organized crime, quote unquote, was that there were leaders and there were people that committed the crimes at their direction. And that the ability to just prosecute people based on what they were involved in personally made it impossible for the prosecutors to actually go after who they perceived to be the leaders of these organized crime families. And what we've seen with Rico is Those tools being utilized against radical political movements.
5: Dr. Shakur has now served 34 years in prison and has been denied parole eight times. In December 2019, he was diagnosed with life-threatening bone cancer. He is currently incarcerated at the Lexington, Kentucky Medical Prison, receiving treatment. He has been denied compassionate release, despite being a perfect candidate.
2: Matula is a great candidate for parole. He has been a mentor to countless other prisoners, and I've spoken with numerous men who went through the prison system and were released and are successful now on the outside and attribute Matulu's guidance and insight to their ability to be successful on the outside. He is almost 70 years old now. And statistically, the science shows that the statistical risk of recidivism goes down as people age And that the risk of recidivism once people reach the age of 70 is almost zero. And that's by, you know, the FBI's own numbers. With political cases, that's so difficult where a lot of times, you know, people's political philosophies evolve and people continue to to learn and develop as society develops. But their underlying beliefs haven't necessarily changed. And... Sometimes a parole board or parole commission might want to see that it might be an easier thing for somebody to go before the parole board and to say, I was wrong for believing what I believed all those years ago. And where you have individuals that that's not the case and they can't do that. And as an attorney, you can't in good, you know, I can't in good faith encourage somebody to denounce their beliefs that they've spent years Holding on to because that's that's where their integrity is. And so that, that becomes a, a real challenge there. In today's day and age where we're looking at mass incarceration and we're looking at aging prison populations, it's important to think about the societal impacts of continuing to incarcerate people who are getting older and who can and should be safely released to society.
4: We're at a different, we're at a different stage now. I'm, you know, I, I'm consultant for Black Lives Matter. I uh, do security consultant for them as Black uh, movement for Black Lives, and most people end up in the involved movement because of my background, I lend that expertise in that area. I'm inspired by young people that are doing what they're doing now. They're an extension. Uh, they've, they've, they've gone beyond what we were, were doing uh, to the point where you have uh, more white people getting Black Lives Matter than I would, ever thought I would see. You have Portland, you have Seattle, you have all these people that are continually in the street. And so with COVID-19 and everything and people, uh, you know, sheltered in place, it was a perfect storm. People didn't have work to go to. They have been, you know, basically locked in all this time. And so they're out there and their frustrations are coming through. And so for those people that are in the street, we can see when you can just sit, kill a man by putting your knee on him right there on television. When you can just shoot a dude with the guy in the back because you, he's running through the neighborhood and you don't like the way he looks. You just, you know, no knock log, kill Breonna Taylor. All these things, there's nothing different today than what happened when we were involved as young people except cameras in the media. And that's what we're looking at.
5: I want to thank Dr. Matulu Shakur for his guidance and placing his trust in me to help share this story. Thanks for listening. We'll leave the last words to him.
3: Um, I, hope, I wish I could've uh, derived more. Um, I just wanna be sure that uh, everyone knows that I still have the fire in the belly, that I'll do what I can to be as productive from here as I can, that I have legal cases that will put these issues in the public record and we will continue to uh, share that with whoever and that the international community should know that the new African independence struggle and the struggle for justice is live and well. It's dormant but here comes the win. Free Mia. Okay.
1: That's the end of our series. Thank you for listening would like to extend our gratitude to all those who collaborated on this podcast. Juan Cortez, Walter Bosque, Dimitri Mugianis, and all the folks at Naira. Joanna Fernandez, Cleo Silvers, Dr. Shadidi Kinsey, Dr. Samuel Kelton Roberts Jr., Haki Kwele Shakur, Watani Tayemba, Brad Thompson, Tyrone Shakur, Wopreem Shakur, Talia Rodriguez Shakur, Margie Navarro, and of course, Dr. Murtulu Shakur for trusting us to tell this story. The producers would like to thank Tayimba Jess for allowing us to use an excerpt from his 1992 telephone interview with Dr. Murtulu Shakur from Lompoc Federal Prison for WHBK Radio in Chicago. And thank you to Lee Lee, Lee for his generous support in allowing us access to his full interview with Dr. Murtulu Shakur from his important documentary, All Power to the People: The Black Panther Party and Beyond. This podcast was produced by I Still Film, a documentary production company based in Montreal, Canada. The four-part podcast series is based on the documentary feature film Dope is Death, created with the financial participation of the Canada Media Fund and Super Channel Entertainment Network. Written, directed, and hosted by Mia Donovan, with the creative collaboration of sound designer Lynn Trebanier, and story editing and additional writing by Sarah Musgrave. Sound mix by Simon Blouf, Additional narration by Latif Martin, with music by Ramachandra Borkar. Produced by Mia Donovan and Lynn Trebanier. Supervising producer Katie McKay. Executive producer Bob Moore. Thank you to Corey Rizos and Samantha Neboschewski. For more information, visit DopasDeath.com. All
0: right, beautiful people. That is our show for the week. And remember, please get involved. You can't say that you don't know now. Slavery is legal in this country. We do have political prisoners. We have people that have been inside uh, since their youth, and they are now elders. We need to get them home. I encourage you to stay informed and get involved. Read the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper at sfbayview.com. Read Prison Focus Newsletter at prisons.org. Be on the right side of humanity and do not be complicit in your own oppression. All power to the people. Get ready for work week with Steve Saltzer.